bum bum bottom 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 bum
for Garth Ennis, the creator we know today. And uh, British comics as we know them today. Uh, and American comics that we know today. I love how Garth Ennis tracks where we are right now in the world of comics to battle and action in the UK in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's, uh, like, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation. It's something I had not considered before. And guys, don't worry. Yes, we're going to talk about his career with him in a larger scope as well. But if you came here for preacher chat, that's not necessarily what we are doing here. Uh, if you want some Punisher content, oh my God, you are going to get some Punisher content in this conversation. Uh, but we're going to save the Jesse and Tulip banter for later. And we do have him on the record saying <laughs> he he will come back to talk preacher at some point on Comic Book Couples Counseling. I think he may have just been being polite. Uh, no, Lisa. <laughs> Once it's on the microphone, that is a blood contract. So he's chained to Comic Book Couples Counseling. He must return to talk preacher. Uh, we do get into this other comic book that he is doing for 2080, Hawk the Slayer, which is probably the most unlikely comic book to be released in 2022. If you are not familiar, Hawk the Slayer was a fantasy adventure film that came out in 1980, starring Jack Palance as the main villain. And it is one of the weirdest <laughs> and wildest fantasy films you could possibly imagine. Uh, as we tell Garth in the conversation, Lisa and I got a chance to watch this a few years ago at the Alamo Draft House in Ashburn, Virginia. And like, I was immediately in love. But again, Lisa, <laughs> you maybe you didn't connect. And maybe in this conversation, I sort of like, I say maybe that you are a great Hawk the Slayer lover. And you gave me this look when I said, said that. And you're like, now you're just lying to Garth Ennis. <laughs> Yeah, Brad creates this farce where I'm this enormous Hawk the Slayer fan. And because I am spineless, I just go <laughs> along with it. But anybody who's been listening for comic book couples counseling for any amount of time knows that I have no patience <laughs> for swords and knights and wizards. And I realize that that is a me problem. I know that it is a, a beautiful, rich genre, but when somebody says, okay, we're putting a team together and it's going to be a giant, a dwarf, an elf, and two white dudes, I'm like, I'm out, no thanks. <laughs> you know what though, my memory of you watching Hawk the Slayer was that you did have a good time with it because it, it is- It is so weird. It is so weird. And the fact that this is like the piece of media that Garth Ennis has latched onto. He's made it his personal mission to go from publisher to publisher and and say that he wants to add to the Hawk the Slayer franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and we read the first issue. The first issue is uh, illustrated by Henry Flint. I really, really liked it. I could not remember that I had seen the movie <laughs> until I had read, there's like a recap that opens up the comic and I'm like, this is familiar. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, uh, and, and because like what you see, Hawk the Slayer, it it, it burns into your yeah. memory. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we chat uh, a lot with him. So like this conversation is basically like, how did Garth Ennis become Garth Ennis? And within that umbrella conversation, there's all these other little goodies that we can talk about on the outro of this episode. I'm so excited to get into it. I think we should just do it, Lisa. I think we should just jump in with Garth Ennis right now. 
we should say, like, we did this over Zoom, and originally we were going to record via Zencaster, um, but sometimes Zencaster can be a little tricky. Uh, with if you don't have, like, the right browser or right, whatever. Right, right, right. So we switched over to Zoom, and in switching over to Zoom, I wanted to elevate my laptop so I didn't have that whole double chin thing going on with Garth Ennis, <laughs> and I took this giant stack of oh, books yeah. that was to my right, and I put them under my laptop to elevate the to elevate it, and then during the introduction, <laughs> which you are going to hear, you're going to hear this landslide of books <laughs> to my right, like the like by un uh, removing those critical load bearing books and putting them under my laptop, I created this massive avalanche, and. It's, I'm disappointed how not loud it sounds. It's just enough to distract the conversation and give us an awkward intro with Garth. Um, but guys, it was a lot of books that came collapsing It was down. hilarious, and I think it's going to be used as evidence when they find our corpses underneath an enormous yeah. book avalanche. Yeah, I think about the Simpsons episode with uh, Principal Skinner uh, trapped under all those newspapers. Uh -huh. That is our end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's either that or we go to prison for our apartment collapsing and smashing the family below us <laughs> under the weight of just paper. Yeah, that's a that's a genuine concern. Just uh, omnibuy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's. Okay. Now let's talk to Garth Ennis. <laughs> Garth, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Book Couples Counseling today. This is a crazy thrill to have you here, as uh, my all my pleasure. books fell. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to join you. I'm super curious about the Battle Action Special and cool. how it feels like to me that it's a culmination of everything that you've been building towards, especially in recent years. Does that feel like the case for you? I think that's true. Um, it, I regard it as being separate from the regular war stories that I write. Um, battle action, um, the special, it very much harkens back to the war stories I read as a kid um, in battle. Uh, and As it was known for several years of its existence, battle action. Um, so in recent years, I've been part of, um, the effort to get a lot of the old stuff reprinted. I've written a lot of introductions for the, um, collected editions. Uh, I did the new Johnny Red, uh, story with Keith Burns a few years ago, reviving the classic character. And then a couple of years ago, um, I wrote stories for the battle and action specials that Rebellion put out, which really led directly to this. Okay. And does it feel like um, you are like linking back into the origins of yourself as a creator? <laughs> In a way, yes. Um, I've often said that it was my enjoyment of war comics as a kid that led me to an interest in military history once I discovered uh, as every kid reading war comics does, that these Red Sea stories based on reality, on things that real men and women had done. Um, so I read military history, have an interest in that. And then, of course, once I start writing comics, it's not too long before the whole thing become, comes full circle and I'm writing my own war comics. Uh, so, yeah, this this is sort of back to the beginning for me, as it were. Uh, but to me, it seems like what you read in battle kind of set the tone for your 
entire career because even though um, there is always a theme of like war and ex-military in your comics and there's always the under the underlying message that the real problem is the system that takes people and manipulates them into fighting battles for um, for ideas that are not exactly what they're there for. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that's in the classic battle stories. Most obviously, Charlie's War um, by Pat Mills and Joe Calhoun, where you have a young guy. He's only sixteen. He's idealistic, um, and and his idealism is really exploited by the establishment of the time and he finds himself in the British army fighting in the the great meat grinder of the Western Front. Um, Later you have Johnny Red, uh, which is where we see um, the the Second World War battles on the Russian Front, where human lives are essentially spent like like loose change. Life means absolutely nothing. The protagonist, Johnny Red, goes from the class-conscious, class-riven United Kingdom, where working people get the the, the bad end of the stick. You can uh, swear on here, by the way. To the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union, where blood means nothing and millions of people die in this cataclysm, this confrontation between fascism and communism. So, yes, that aspect of things has always been there. Battle is where I first learned about that. When you were reading Battle, like, did you feel like you were reading something that was controversial or contrary to the mainstream take on uh, on war history? Not at the time, uh, because I was eight years old when I began mm-hmm. reading Battle. It, it seemed to me just like an exciting adventure war comic. Um, it it did something did start to seep through when I was reading Charlie's War because that strip um, really is unique uh, among war comics, certainly of the era. Uh, that strip goes out of its way to show you that there was something terribly wrong here. Uh, very early on in Charlie's War, um, the Battle of the Somme is about to begin and the troops are told it's going to be a walkover. You know, the Germans will simply be devastated by the artillery barrage and the infantry can can walk through no man's land and uh, and take their objectives. Of course, it's an absolute bloodbath and you, you get these horrific scenes uh, of soldiers charging across no man's land with hundreds of corpses at their feet. I think one one guy says something like, if hell is worse than this, I'd better start mending my ways. <laughs> and so it's, it seems like that and another... Uh, another scene set towards the end of the first day of the battle when I think the British had lost 20,000 men and twice that wounded, um, where there's a roll call of the platoon. And as the names are called out, people have to shout dead, you know, either here or dead if their friend is dead. And one guy says here, just as a sniper's bullet smacks him between the eyes and the sergeant calls his name again and it's dead, Sarge. And even as a kid, you can't read stuff like that without realizing that something's gone horribly awry and you're being shown something you've never seen before. So that's really where it started. 
Yeah, it's interesting how growing up, you know, my my grandfather was at D-Day, our understanding of World War II uh, in America was like, it was the good war. And mm. I wonder, you know, my mom's from Devon, and her imagination around World War II was different than my father's imagination around World War II. And mm. I'm curious if the British experience and understanding of World War II, especially... Um, inferred by their experience in World War One, mm. uh, kind of gives British comics, British creators a one-up on understanding that there is no good war, the way that American audiences kind of fooled themselves for a long time that there was a good war? Um, I think uh, uh, one, thing, one distinction I should make is that a Charlie's War is, of course, a First World War right. story. Most of the others in battle are Second World War stories. There is definitely a sense in the UK, in Britain, of the First World War experience informing the Second. Uh, the British Army does not really perform brilliantly in World War II. One of the stories I wrote in uh, in the Battle Action Special, the Sarge, goes into this. Uh, they've the men who joined the British Army, who are conscripted into the British Army in World War II, uh, come from families where if they were lucky enough to know their fathers, if their fathers hadn't been killed 20 years ago on the Somme, on the Western Front, um, they they would have grown up probably with a, quite a cynical attitude to the notion of fighting for one's country serving one's country and so on because their fathers again if they'd survived would have told them well we went through hell for four years and we did not get a land fit for heroes and life has not gotten easier we got none of the things we were promised and the war didn't really resolve anything anyway um and that's unfortunate of course because when you get to the second world war even though it's an even bigger bloodbath uh there are vastly important points at issue. You know, are we going to be a fascist or a communist totalitarian state, or are we going to continue as a reasonably free democracy with all its flaws? Mm. That's the one where fighting to the finish suddenly becomes horribly necessary. Yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder um, your relationship with battle and action and how they might have influenced you as... Um, uh, you know, this is an easy word as a provocateur, as a button pusher. You know, you you, you oh. look at your comics, and it it seems to me that you do take joy in taking stories to their limits and mm -hmm. uh, pushing right up to the boundaries, if not crossing them. And I, I, yeah. that is part of the mythology around battle and action as well. Yeah, it's it, that's an interesting take on it. Um, Battle and especially action, of course, exist because at the time in the mid-70s in British comics, there's an understanding that kids can see far worse, far more extreme material on TV and in the movies. They're turning away from comics. Therefore, we have to make the comics competitive. Therefore, we have to go a bit further. Uh, and battle and especially action, which goes so far it gets withdrawn from sale, uh, and 2000 AD are a big part of that. Um, now, rather than, I would say that rather than being deliberately provocative, what they taught me, what I what I took from them was just really the notion of taking the story where it's supposed to go. Mm. As a kid, I didn't know that I was being shown something with that agenda behind it, with that push the envelope 
tendency. I just thought this is what comic book stories were supposed to be like. 2000 AD was my first ever comic battle, my second. So as far as I was concerned, this is how you did it. You take the story where it's supposed to go. That, I think, more than any kind of deliberate button pushing, is is what I learned from those comics. Mm. And now do you feel like what you're doing by continuing these stories, is it something of an homage? Are you just adding to the legacy of it? Like, and how do these stories serve today's audience? Um, It's a variety of things. I mean, there's the sheer enjoyment of writing these characters that I grew up reading. Mm But I do have an agenda here, and it's essentially to get some recognition for the for the comics, and and especially for the writers and artists and editors who produced them, uh, who did all this amazing work, and who perhaps aren't as well known today. Um, Action was folded into battle after a year. That was in seventy seven, uh, and in seventy. Uh, sorry, in 87, Battle was cancelled anyway. So for the past 40 years, roughly, 35, 40 years, these comics haven't existed and their legacy has faded. That's why I was so happy to be part of the effort to get them reprinted um, mm-hmm. to see so that people could see Charlie's War, see Johnny Red and Darkie's Mob and, and all the rest. And the Battle Action Special in this context adds to that effort because it makes the characters visible again and it gets the writers and artists a bit of recognition. Um, American audiences are probably aware of Pat Mills from Martial Law and they've heard of Judge Dredd, so they may know John Wagner. Um, But guys like Jerry Finley Day, Tom Tully, Alan Hebden, artists like Mike Dory, John Cooper, Joe Calhoun, um, Mike Western... Uh, they're largely unknown, and I'd like to do something about that. And this is part of the effort to do that. Where did that desire come from? This desire to like uplift the creators who helped you and and your imagination uh, growing up? Uh, well, I suppose partly a sense of a debt to be paid, and partly looking around and seeing, well, everyone else gets gets this you know the uh the writers and artists who created the you know the classic marvel and dc comics mm-hmm. are you know rightly heralded uh as having done so um uh 2000 ad of course you know so many of the writers and artists of that are well known uh from dave gibbons to uh alan moore to uh mike mcmahon to brian Bolland. but it seems to me that in this little corner of british comics um we have we have a lot of underdogs and forgotten heroes. Um, and I really felt the need, I suppose, to do something about that. After all, Battle is where it started. Battle was the first of these comics. Uh, it was launched in 75. Now, if it hadn't worked, if it hadn't been a hit, they couldn't have done action. And if they hadn't done action, there'd be no 2000 AD. And that means that you, you don't have that revolution in comics that comes along in, 19, in the late 1970s. And that means you don't have this generation of great British writers and artists who form this massive injection of talent into the American industry in the 80s. The rest is history. And I would, I would like to draw people's attention to the starting point of all this and say, this is where it began. 
That's wow. an awesome parallel that I had not really traced back to action. Like the action leads to the British new wave in American comics. Uh, mm-hmm. That's fabulous well, it's, to it's think really, about. It's really battle. Action at this point sort of lives on its reputation. It only lasted a year mm-hmm. and it has this kind of bad boy rep because it went too far and got banned. Mm-hmm. And then... And then it neutered and returned to seal. And then and then the seals were just so poor because, of course, people had been promised and had been enjoying this incredibly bloody action-packed comic. What they got was this sort of watered-down version of it. So it, it was gone not long after that. Um, but it is it is important to note the contribution of action and the injection of talent and new characters that Battle got as a result which is a big part of the battle action special mm. to celebrate that moment when they the two become one and you you have all these guys working d- just doing some of their best work mm. Uh, In preparation for this conversation, Lisa and I have been reading a bunch of your recent war comics. We went back to Sarah, uh, Out of the Blue, um, the stuff you're doing with Aftershock. You also just released uh, The Lion and the Eagle. Uh, The first issue just dropped here. Uh, And I, I, I feel like, again, as Lisa pointed out, you know, your relationship with war has been there from the, your earliest comics. You can see mm-hmm. it in Preacher, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it feels like it has greatly evolved. And I feel like Sarah was a little bit of a turning point for where you are now in your comics writing. Uh, is, do you feel like that's true? Um, I would see, I mean, Sarah is one of my favorites. Absolutely. Um, I think that one worked out great. Um, but I do see it as as more of a step along the road mm. than a turning point. Um you, you've got uh if you if you consider the war stories series that began at Vertigo and went to Avatar, that's about 20 years ago. Battlefields at Dynamite, and then some of the titles you mentioned. I feel like it's been more of an evolutionary process, really. Uh, and Sarah, Sarah is just a particularly successful example. But it is one of my favorites, unquestionably. Uh, you know, on, on that line of thought, I also think back to Frank Castle and The Punisher. And what right. I liked so much about that series is how you showed uh, what his experience on Vietnam and how that mm, po- poisons maybe too strong of a word, but how it 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 imprinted itself on Mm -hmm. him as a person and how it led to his philosophy as this vigilante. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's, he, he's drafted for Vietnam. He becomes a soldier. He finds out that he's good at it. Then he gets a taste for it. Then he goes essentially too far. And it becomes obvious that circumstances are going to conspire to to make this not just a tour of duty, but his life. Um, I should say, actually, there's going to be another Punisher, uh, presumably later this year, uh, a Vietnam story that will kind of join uh, the events of the Nick Fury series. Oh, yeah. Going by with Bourne. So you'll find out what happened in between and how he ended up at Firebase Valley Forge and how it might not be what people are expecting because Frank's... Uh, Frank's competency becoming almost enjoyment of combat is not a straight line. And, mm. and it wasn't perhaps as inevitable people uh, as people might think, but you'll see that in the story. Oh man, that's, that's super interesting to me. You know, again, one of the comics I read this week was the platoon. 
Mm. with the Punisher. And uh, we actually had, uh, this is a weird tangent, but we had Dolph Lundgren on the show ta- and oh, we were yeah. talking to him about his Punisher experience. And right, one of the things right. I liked about his Punisher was that you got this sense that he was broken. And, you know, like mm-hmm. he, he is such a wounded animal. And like, that's a little bit of a connective tissue that I see between his performance and your version of Frank Castle. Like, Wounded is certainly true. Maybe broken is not the right word, but there's a fracture in your Frank. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's there's something terribly wrong with the guy. And uh, he's he started to see things in a terribly, terribly black and white way. It's interesting, actually, because that old Dolph Lundgren movie, even though it's very much a B movie, yeah. is, if you think about it, the most honest attempt to capture the Punisher because there's no, uh, as there are in all the others, there's no pulling back. There's no compromise. There's no attempt to sweeten him a little bit and take him away from what he so obviously is. In that movie, every time Frank pulls a gun, he doesn't put it away until about a dozen people are dead. Yeah. <laughs> he never doubts. Um, I thought the actors that have played the Punisher over the years have all been great, but they've all been part of these sort of watered down, slightly anemic versions uh the most recent one with john bernthal who was superb the length they went to to avoid having scenes where he would shoot people yeah where he would he would soak up horrific physical damage in fist fights that he could he would have avoided simply by shooting the opponent rather than allowing himself to be uh to be dragged into a situation where he has to fight six guys yeah um I became more and more conscious of that as it went on. You don't get that in the Lundgren one at all. You no, really not at all. And like, I, I think that's the tricky thing with the Punisher is that we, when you have creators who treat him like a superhero, like a costumed character, right. um, it really becomes something ugly in a way that is not enjoyable to me or interesting. Right, right. It's because I think. Marvel have never quite been certain of what to do with the Punisher. Uh, they know that if they get it right, it means kerching, because it did in the past. But of course, nowadays you have this additional controversy essentially revolving around him as a guy with a gun. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I understand they're kind of bringing him back as a kind of ninja next. Yeah, um, And I, I think the essential problem is having him in the Marvel universe where he has these interactions with characters that are always going to be meaningless because he can't do what he normally does, which is kill them. And they can't do what would probably happen, which is kill him. Right. Because that's why the smart thing to do with the Punisher, I think is just take him out of the Marvel universe completely. And if you are going to have characters from that universe, make it Nick Fury, who's a, who's another guy with no powers and leave it at that because once you get him into that sort of multicolored world of superheroes the tone of the thing is wrong and no story can ever go to its logical conclusion anyway so it's kind of pointless yeah um like one of my like pop culture pet peeves is the use of a traumatized soldier as a shorthand of like, this is an individual who is capable of terrible things, who mm-hmm. is angry, who is broken. And what I think is so different about um, your stories and your war stories in particular is 
that there is there is more justification to the jadedness. And mm. I like the direction you're taking the lion and the eagle uh, with the relationship between Keith Crosby, who is the career military guy, mm-hmm. and Alistair Whitmore, who is the medic and the volunteer. And you have this contrast of the person who has, both of them are relatively green when it comes to combat, but like um, Crosby has been fed this like diet of just, you know, just straight military stuff. And Whitmore is coming in with this slightly more scientific, slightly more analytical angle. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm very interested to see where their relationship goes. And um, I was wondering if this relationship is going to at, allow you to add another dimension to this um, jaded military story. Mm, um, it's important distinction. Uh, Alistair is actually a conscript. Um, he did not like so many men in the British Army in World War II. He was conscripted. He was drafted. Okay. Uh, and he's found himself in a situation that he's really not ready for, but he is good at that one thing, and that's being a doctor and keeping men alive. And it's that that's going to uh, going to essentially form the the real problem for him and Keith. Keith's a military commander. He he uses men's lives to achieve military objectives, and Alistair has to deal with the results. Mm-hmm. And you'll see as the story goes on, and things get darker and worse this is what actually happened in real life in mm-hmm. fact that the british are faced with this terrible dilemma of what happens when they li- if they have if they have to deal with wounded men who they can't take with them yeah and that's something that happened again and again where they found that if they left wounded men to the japanese the results would not be good is the understatement of the year and that leaves you with a dilemma do you take them along knowing that you'll slow everybody else down and endanger more lives or do you leave them behind? And if you leave them behind, what do you do with them? Especially if they're incapable of taking action by themselves. And that, that is going to bring that very question is going to bring Alistair and Keith's relationship to a breaking point. In fact, uh, I love your use of the mute, donkeys as like the symbol of Keith's type of naivete where he doesn't think to the next step of the donkeys don't bray. Well, these just are non-braying donkeys. You know, he doesn't think about, well, how, how, how do they get it? So the donkeys don't bray. And for Alistair to kind of needle that Mm -hmm. brand of ignorance like I, I find that very fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where that symbolism goes. Yeah, it, as well as the symbolism, you'll also see that that particular misunderstanding, once word spreads, begins to dog Keith's heels because mm-hmm. everyone finds out about it, and everyone starts making fun of him for it. And you'll, you, it, it's also just a little injection of humor into the story because by the end of it, that story, I assure you, will have needed a little bit of humor. Mm-hmm. Just oh, a man. Little, but it's like the, the, it's like the, like, ridiculousness. Like, it just, yeah. like, that kind of humor underscores, like, the ridiculousness of 
of what human beings at war are doing. Which it's is just, what Garth has done since the right. earliest comics I've read of his. Yeah. Well, I, I, that probably goes back to battle. It, it goes back to um, reading stories where the writers and artists also brought, as well as combat and characterization, also brought in uh, that sort of grotesque humor of war. Mm-hmm. Um, where soldiers, the sense of humor that develops is is really, it's a way for men to save their sanity mm-hmm. um, because they find that laughing at certain things, things that otherwise, you know, we would find appalling is really the only way to cope mentally. It's it's kind of a, a release valve in a way. Um, I think of Charlie's War and I think of the soldiers fishing for rats in no man's land with barbed wire, things like that. Um, absolutely bizarre, grotesque, and yet they did it. And it brings a moment in the story where you where you you stop uh, experiencing the horror and the slaughter for a moment, and you and you see that weird side of human ingenuity that comes in when people are just trying to keep themselves entertained. Um, things like that, I think, um, as a result, have always been a part of my work too. Now we have you for a few more minutes, but before we let you go, I we need cool. to do a hard left and talk about <laughs> Hawk the Slayer, a comic right. I don't think I could have possibly predicted was ever going to come into existence. Mm. Like three years ago, Lisa and I had the opportunity at the Alamo Draft House to watch Hawk the Slayer for the first time <laughs> on the big screen, and right. we loved it, especially yeah. Jack Palance. But yeah. like, how how on earth? Do you become the writer of a Hawk the Slayer sequel comic? Um, I think because, I think by, essentially by asking people over the years if they can get the rights um, and that way word spreads. Um, because editors and publishers are always asking, would you like to do this? Would you like to do that? Is there a property we could get? And of course, usually they get answers like Predator or Alien or Battlestar Galactica or Star Wars or whatever. And because I'm less interested in doing things that have already been done multiple times, um, I always mentioned Hawk just because it was sort of cooking away in the back of my mind a little bit. It's one of those films that inspires in me anyway, those questions like, I wonder what happened next. I wonder why that really happened. I wonder, will Voltan come back and what will he be like? And I wonder what was really going on with those elfin mind stones and and the sword and this sort of stuff. And uh, eventually, of course, somebody does get the rights and they've heard I'm interested and the rest is history, really. It all comes together like that. (sighs) I I love the idea of the same kid who is reading battle is also mm. like watching Hawk the Slayer and going like, yeah. this is also amazing. And yeah. I love that now you're like seizing this moment to like go like, okay, I'm going to fulfill, like I'm going to complete the thought of that 10 year old boy yeah, or whatever. Exactly. So, so um, it, do you feel like there's something about being like, 10 to 12 where you're it's just like i guess like that's when the cement is wet and hawk the slayer you'd be a little older than 10 to 12 right hawk the slayer was like 1980 uh i saw it a year later so i would have been 11 oh man i i did the math brad i did some light research well i'm an english major i don't do math (laughs) but Uh, yeah 
So um, what, 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 what is it about being like, why are you going back to that 11 year old boy now? Um, or, or is it just like, now you can. Yeah, no, I can. Um, and of course, you know, I- events conspired. It just so happened that rebellion were able to finally free up the rights. I think there was there were some complications there. Um, they got in touch with me a couple of years ago. Um, as for why I like Hawk the Slayer, I think it's a case of having seen it at just the right age, um, being able to enjoy it, you know, as a kid, but also perhaps on the level intended. And over the years, um, the uh, perhaps large portion of cheese that accompanies that film, mm-hmm. um, engendering rather than disdain, kind of a fondness for it. That can happen sometimes. It depends on when you first saw the movie, depends on your frame of mind. Um, there's also that that element of when you hear people uh, when you hear people slag off something like that that you love, it just makes you double down in a way. It just it just sends your imagination soaring even more. It makes you think, yeah, but what that guy, that guy doesn't like it. But what he hasn't considered is what would happen if, da-da-da-da-da-da. So even, even the kind of negative reviews that people give that movie can kind of spark your imagination in an unexpected way. Amen to that. That's how I feel about the 2019 Hellboy film. <laughs> like when people crap on that movie, I just dig my heels in it. I say I love it even more. Well, Brad has right. never stopped being a 10 to 12 year old boy. So that's true. That's true. Well, yeah. I, I mean, we all have those movies, don't we? We all have those ones that movies, comic books, TV shows, novels, plays, doesn't matter. Even if the writers, the creators themselves have disowned it. It doesn't really matter because on some basic emotional level, you hold on to your original response to that film uh, and you don't care what other people say. Um, and you don't care even what the creators of the the story say. It's what it means to you that counts. Yeah, absolutely. And you read the first issue of Hawk the Slayer and you can feel your fondness for it. And the way that oh. you end that comic with a particular character, you're like, oh, Garth really <laughs> likes that character, and I yeah. love that. Yeah, well, one of the one of the uh, the strange aspects of Hawk the Slayer is how much, first of all, how dangerous the heroes are, and how how perfectly happy they are to employ violence. Do you mind if we pause yeah. this for one sure. second? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, not a problem. We're gonna after this, we'll do like a quick wrap up. Sorry, guys. No, no, um, not a yes. problem. I was talking about um, I was talking about how violent the heroes are and how willing they are to um, commit mass acts of mass carnage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the ways and you see you see them do that. It happens again and again. Is Hawk and the others will hold back while the bowman and the crossbowman will cut down most of the opposition. Um, really, probably wiping out. 80, 90% of their number, so that when the close quarters guys like Hawk go in with swords and hammers and so on, there's really not much work left for them to do. <laughs> yeah. So there's this, there's this sort of, there's there's the logic of firepower, you might say, is employed. And that's what the character you're talking about uh, really exemplifies. Um, 
in the scene that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, so good. I loved it. Definitely was like, I need issue two now. Uh, Garth, this has been an absolute joy for us. Thank you for coming on. Uh, We'll have links in the show notes for uh, all these uh, comics that you're doing, putting out right now, your social media feeds. But just in case people don't uh, look at those links, is there any place that uh, you would like to direct our listeners? Um, Having no social media presence whatsoever, Um, I guess it would be your local comic shop. But um, right now, as you say, the Lion and the Eagle is out. Uh, The Battle Action Special will be out in June. Um, Further down the line, there will be this Punisher book. Um, There'll be another series of Jimmy's Bastards at some point later in the year. And uh, there's there's also a new horror book that I can't really go into much detail about right now, but that will appear sometime, probably sometime next year. Awesome. Uh, Well, you know, our listeners are going to be so upset that we didn't bring up Jesse and Tulip at all during this conversation. (laughs) Too bad for them. You'll just have to come back on at some point so we can talk preacher stuff. Happy to. All right. Thank you, Garth. You have a great day. You too. Take care, guys. Cheers. Okay, Lisa, what is my favorite part of that conversation? Like Brad's most cherished moment in this entire chat? Uh, the moment when you shoehorn in that you got to talk to Dolph Lundgren? Yes, correct. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I, we had these conversations back to back, Dolph Lundgren and Garth Ennis. And I, you know, you can't talk to Garth Ennis without talking about the Punisher. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get his opinion on 1989's The Punisher, uh, starring Dolph Lundgren, a film that Lisa and I both like, and we've discussed, we've had a whole episode on in our Patreon feed, our comically real episode on that, and we're fans of it. And I was curious to see if he would be a fan, because I had an impression that he would be based on the Frank Castle that he writes in his series. And yeah, there he goes, confirms it. Dolph Lundgren's Punisher is a good movie. It is the definitive Punisher film. Yeah, yeah, and so that was like an absolute delight in this chat to uh, get on the record. Another interesting thing that he said that I totally agree with is that the Punisher in his purest form does not fit within the Marvel universe. He is not a hero. He cannot work side by side with Spider-Man. Yeah, you know, growing up with the Punisher, um, 80s, early 90s, the Stallone era, the Schwarzenegger era, the Death Wish, Charles Bronson era. Like the Punisher very much comes from that period. But what I enjoyed so much about Garth Ennis's take on that character is how he showed him to be a fractured person. Mm-hmm. Like he was not somebody to role model yourself after. It's it's what happens to a human when the worst things happen to a human. It's like when rage and despair take over, and he, you get Frank Castle. And he's de- defined by this utter disregard for human life. And for the systems that are in place that mm-hmm. have failed him. And that's why it's been so weird and infuriating to see the Punisher co-opted by the right wing, by white supremacists. It's like that character and that ethos don't belong together at all. And, you know, I can understand why Marvel currently is trying to, like, do something radical and maybe even make him a little more comic booky in Jason Aaron's upcoming series. I'm very curious about that. But for me, 
I do enjoy exploring the pain of Frank Castle, especially in Garth Ennis's run. And I think understanding that tragedy is at the core of Dolph Lundgren's Punisher mm -hmm. and is missing in Thomas Jane's and even Ray Stevenson's. I like a lot about the Ray Stevenson one, but that goes back a little bit more to that death wishy Charles Bronson-y vibe. And Barenthal's Punisher has some great moments and Barenthal's a crazy good actor, but you know, I you talk about in this chat with Garth Ennis, the thing that that's your pet peeve is when they use PTSD as like a simple explainer. Uh, just for, a shorthand for this person is capable of anything. They're a machine. They have no emotion. Right. And that's what Barenthal's Punisher series does on Netflix. That is like really upsetting. Offensive. And Garth Ennis's doesn't do that. It, there's so many more layers to Garth Ennis's Punisher. So that whole period of that conversation, Lisa, yes, was absolutely my favorite part of this chat. But I was also surprised by how, um, uh, like, how revelatory discussing his origins with battle and action were to understanding him as a creator. And I think I had an idea of how Garth Ennis became Garth Ennis before we had this conversation, but now I have a definite idea of how Garth Ennis became Garth Ennis, and it is because of battle and action. We got a little taste of it when we were at Awesome Con this year. He oh no, Baltimore. That Baltimore. was at Baltimore. Who was on the panel oh, with him? No, Can you yeah, remember? yeah. It was Baltimore. It was at Dynamite Comics. They were talking about, oh, I can't remember. I, well, I think it was like spinning out of the boys. Uh-huh. And he the way he was speaking was about how he had just kind of become tired of superhero comics mm -hmm. and he would only contribute to superhero comics if it was like a favor for a friend yeah but from now on it is just war comics he's just wants to pay homage to that that genre and how that built him up as a writer and a creator and i thought that i had bootlegged that onto my phone <laughs> and i went back to that uh voice memo and it was just the sound of ghosts. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that, you know, you know, to be totally honest, when Garth Ennis like fully entrenched himself with his war comics with 2000 AD, Aftershock and Dynamite, I was maybe less interested because I'm a little bit more of a basic Wednesday warrior. But preparing for this conversation, we read Sarah. I think Sarah's one of really the best special. things he's ever done. Um, the new comic with Aftershock, The Lion and the Eagle is really good, one issue in. We read uh, Dreaming Eagles also at Aftershock, uh, the spring, uh, the, sh the spring, the string bags at, um, oh, who's publishing the string bags? It's an interesting publisher. Uh, Dead Reckoning out of Annapolis, Maryland. Oh, interesting. Uh, A Walk Through Hell is his war comic with Aftershock. Read that this week. Also really enjoyed that. And Out of the Blue from Aftershock is great. And there was another one. Oh, The Night Witches from Dynamite Comics. So, like, if you're like me and you're like, I like capes and spandex and uh, I, I haven't really ventured into Garth Ennis's war comics, uh, do yourself a favor Highly and get recommend. on. Highly recommend. I think that it is so salient, you know? It, like, I think that this is a critical conversation that we should be having um, where we are today with our military yeah. infiltrating our um, our 
legal system, not legal system, our, law our, and order system. Right, yes, our law and order system. It's cops, you guys. Tanks in the streets. <laughs> I, I think that um, we need to talk about this less fun, much more real yeah. Um, I mean, Lisa and I both grew up in military families, right? In World War II, you know, my grandfather uh, survived the sinking of the USS Quarry off the coast of Utah Beach. My grandfather was in Burma. Yeah. And, you know, we have this idea of what the good war was, World War II as the good war. And when you actually go back and you listen to these stories and you talk to these men, the the, the few men that still remain... Uh, you realize there is no good war. And I think that Garth Ennis, being a Brit coming from Northern Ireland, has a very different idea of what World War II was uh, because of the British experience in World War I, which was far more devastating than the American experience in World War I. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated everything that Ennis had to say about that in this chat as well. And what he has to say in these comics, too. I mean, like He talks about the systemic evil that is operating war in all of these books. And it's incredibly engaging. And critical. Like we have to question authority. We have to ask ourselves how we are convincing human beings to kill other human beings. And it's, it's important. Human beings that are often 19 years old, sometimes younger, a little bit older. Underprivileged. Yeah, yeah. So uh, seek out all these comics that we just mentioned. Certainly be on the lookout for Battle Action coming out in June and then in September everywhere else. It's nine news stories from Garth Ennis. Uh, he's got this crazy cadre of artists that he has assembled we're talking people like Kevin O'Neill and uh, PJ Holden, you know, the usual suspects, uh, but some surprises there as well. Keith Burns. Oh, my goodness. That's they're doing the Johnny Red story together. Uh, yeah, that's going to be really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about this. I want to get my hands on it. And then Hawk the Slayer. You know, we've read the first issue. It is very much a love letter to that film. If you have not seen Hawk the Slayer, you can watch it on Prime Video. Uh, it's like a $3.99 rent. The Blu-ray from Britain is also dirt cheap, and I believe it is region-free, just like the Australian Punisher Blu-ray. Both of those, go grab them. I think they're like $10 a piece. Brad, you also forgot to mention... That battle action has Chris Burnham, who's our best friend, our Comic-Con buddy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. We had a great time with Chris Burnham once at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con. And he is doing art for battle action. Uh, Kevin O'Neill and Chris Burnham doing Garth Ennis War Comics. Uh, if you don't buy battle action, you are crazy. Do you know what else is crazy? What? Our long-awaited Return to Saga has been right around the corner for like weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had some issues and it, th those issues have not just been radical creator corners just dropping into our lap. Uh, I had a migraine last week. Lisa has a migraine this week, so we weren't able to record our Saga episode yet, but it is going to happen next week. I, I feel very confident that that is the case. Um, we are returning to Marco and Alon. Our new season of couple sessions begin with Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, volume five next week. And we are using Helen Russell's How to Be Sad as our relationship guide. And I really do think it is going to be something special. 
Once again, in the show notes, I will have links to our first four saga episodes that we did way back in 2019. They were our second couple? They were our second couple. We were using uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Um, Our style was a little rough. We were still working it out. I just recently uh, re-listened to those episodes, and oh man... I was cringing it up. I can tell you, Lisa, that we've also had several other listeners check out those episodes and have sent us very kind messages about it. So don't beat yourself up too much. Actually, just last night, Jesse James messaged us over on the Patreon Slack feed that he was tearing up uh, enjoying those comics so much and those conversations so much. We love to make people cry. That's it's our like job. our number one thing. Yeah, yeah. So if we didn't make you cry this week, we are going to do it next week. Marco and Alana. I think we can actually apply a lot of our conversation about military comics to Saga, yeah. considering that both Marco and Alana are military, ex-military rebels. And, you know, old soldiers never die. They just take fate away. Uh, yeah. Okay, Brad. Um, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Though right now my phone is broken so i can't the the like top half of my phone is no longer touch sensitive which made you using it really annoying it's time to get that thing replaced if you'd like to spend more quality time with us you can subscribe to us on podbean stitcher youtube google and apple podcasts if you'd like to get exclusive you can join our patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Bum, bum, bum.